Thank you. That was beautiful. And thank you for the applause as I came to the lectern. That was also... Oh, that was... I'm sorry. That was probably... That was probably for them. No, that really was... was very beautiful. Thank you very much. Greetings to everyone from Ohio. I should say Ohio and Pittsburgh. It's my one congregation that's not actually in Ohio. I was afraid I'm going to leave them out. Uh, they say howdy. They actually don't say howdy. They probably say hi or greetings, but I'm from Texas, so I translate that uh, for you. They do say howdy and hope that you're well. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, it's been a while. I don't really normally get to stay for Sabbath services as well. I try to rush back and get back to my area. So I've been excited about getting to stay through the Sabbath. Uh, and also we're coming back for the Charlotte weekend. I hope you're still having it. We're very much looking forward to that. My family has been making a lot of plans, so... Get ready. Uh, we're coming back and looking forward to seeing you here. I thought a lot about the message that I want to give today because one of the things I appreciate about messages from headquarters is the focus on a larger picture. Uh, the church, really any body of people that's trying to accomplish anything, needs someone to help the team, help everyone focus on the larger picture. What are we really doing here? What are we trying to accomplish? Why are we here? And the sermons from headquarters do a great job of doing that in the local congregations. Uh, we've had actually whole messages actually titled The Big Picture. One of our behind-the-work videos uh, many years ago, I think, was titled The Big Picture. I think that was the title I should have checked. I just remember the beginning with Mr. Richard Ames uh, ending, The Big picture, uh, something like that. But we do focus on those things, and we should. And we have uh, big pictures painted for us concerning the work that we're trying to accomplish, concerning the purpose of man, concerning the purpose of the church. We need those messages. At the same time, I didn't want to just add to that because they're done so well from here. And in thinking about that, what I've found in my experience is many of those that eventually leave something comes up in their lives to uh, cause them to want to go someplace else, uh, to no longer be a part in the same way of what God is doing. I would characterize many of those, actually, frankly, all the ones that come to mind, though perhaps there are exceptions, as a crisis of seeing the big picture, as something coming into their life, something coming into their mind, where all of a sudden they don't see the big picture anymore. And it's got me to thinking, and I've, I've thought about this a lot, what are the obstacles that we can experience to seeing the big picture? What are the things that can come into our lives? Uh, what are the mindsets that can enter into us? What are the uh, circumstances in our life that become obstacles to seeing the big picture? And so I do want to talk about those today, and I want to do them through a, uh, a metaphor, I suppose. If you could imagine with me, for the sake of this sermon being an ant crawling on the Mona Lisa. I tried to think, what is a painting that everyone's going to identify with? And I thought the Mona Lisa was a good shot. Uh, there's probably someone out there saying, Mona, what? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you shouldn't be on your phones during services. Maybe you could spend 30 seconds Googling a picture of the Mona Lisa if you're not sure. Uh, but generally, it's a famous picture by Leonardo da Vinci. A lot of Conspiracy theories saying that he was painting a picture of himself and just feminized it. I, I don't think that's the case. I look forward to asking him one day. But it's a very famous portrait of a woman. And imagine just being an ant crawling around on the Mona Lisa. She can't feel it. She's just a painting. It's not going to bother her. But imagine being an ant crawling on that. And I think I can use 
that metaphor as something to help communicate some of the obstacles that we can encounter from seeing the big picture. And so that's my goal today. I want to use this imaginary scenario to help us consider a few obstacles that we can face as individuals when we're trying to see the big picture and to keep it in mind. And that's the title of the sermon today, Obstacles to Seeing the Big Picture. Obstacles to Seeing the Big Picture. Thank you for the water. I assume there's one for the sermon and one for the sermonette. Mr. Soselka, did you drink from the other water? Err. Uh, you know, in old comic books, if things like that, if I were to drink from his water, I would gain maybe superpowers. I'd be taller and handsomer or something, but it's too late. You didn't drink from any of them. So uh, I have two glasses of water to enjoy while I'm up here. The first obstacle to seeing the big picture. Imagine being an ant crawling on the Mona Lisa. You're just an ant. So there's times when you're in the dark parts of the Mona Lisa. You say you're crawling around the hair. Uh, there's times you're crawling on her face, so your square inch is, is flesh tone. Uh, if you look over her right shoulder, uh, there's a bit of a, there's a stream in the background. So maybe you're on that square inch and it's a blue. It's a blue square inch. One of the obstacles we have to seeing the whole picture, the big picture, is that sometimes we can think the square inch that we are on is the color of the whole picture. We can become obsessed with just that. Uh, so you're an ant and you're on her hair and it's black. And oh, the whole picture is black. I, I'm, I'm crawling on a large black picture. But another ant is standing on the water and thinking, oh, I look around and it's blue. I'm on a big blue picture. And someone else is on a green and says, I don't know what those guys are talking about. It's a big green picture because they're on the part that's the grass. Sometimes we can define the whole picture based on simply the square inch that we're occupying at the time. And we have some biblical characters that had an issue with that. I want to take a look at just one. Turn to 1 Samuel, if you would. 1 Samuel. In chapter 13. I do really appreciate the water. We've had meetings uh, the first half of the week and did a couple of telecasts and one of the new uh, webcasts that you can read about in the announcements. And I feel like I've done a lot of talking this week, so my voice was starting to fade just a bit yesterday, but God's been merciful, and I am, seem to be able to speak today. Well, you can decide if that's merciful or not. Uh, merciful on me or merciful on you. But First Samuel chapter 13, we read a tale of Saul, King Saul. Really early in his reign when... There was an opportunity to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and let's go ahead and start in verse 3. It says, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. This is a real rallying cry. This is a pivotal moment. Here's an opportunity for something amazing to happen in Israel. It says, now verse 4, Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30 
thousand chariots, six thousand horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Avon. This is a vast array. They were essentially, uh, you could perhaps paint it in this way in our terms, attacking a superpower. When for the most part they were nothing. Actually, if you take a look at other passages, it describes that while Saul had a sword and, and uh, his son Jonathan had a sword, pretty much everybody else, it was sticks and sharp pointy things. Uh, they're looking at a superpower with the equivalent of tanks and rockets and missiles in their day. And they've got sticks on the ground sharpening them. Ooh, this is going to work great. You know, this is going to do this. Uh, and actually, that's the opposite of what they were thinking. They were looking at that stick. And they were looking at the equipment, really the chariots and the rest, and they weren't thinking this is going to be great. Look at verse 6. Uh, sorry, ver yeah, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, uh, in holes, and in pits. They were terrified, absolutely terrified, thinking, what did they do? What did this guy do? He just hit a hornet's nest. For no good reason, we're going to die. We're going to be wiped out. It says in verse 7, Some of the Hebrews actually crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people following, followed him trembling. They were terrified. He did not have an army of brave men. He had an army of what perhaps today would be called cynically realists. Uh, they saw, verse 8, it says... He waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Paul looks around, I mean, Saul, Saul looks around and sees everybody's leaving. He said, Here I'm going to face this great army, and I look around at my ragtag bunch. This is all I've got, and even they're not hanging around. You do a roll call, and it's like, Okay, good, we got 700. And then you go get something else. Uh, something looks different. Let's do another roll call. We got uh, six. 50. We must have messed up the last count, you know. Oh, what do you need? Oh, talk, 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 talk. Something looks different. Let's do another roll call. 620. Okay, this really isn't going well. Uh, and so he was losing people by the minute. They were terrified. So he was waiting for Samuel to show up because they wanted to sacrifice to God, but Samuel wasn't showing up. I, I have used this as my excuse. This was the divine example showing it's okay for a minister to show up late. You know, we just show up, uh, yeah, I know I said seven days, uh, so I'll make it eight, something like that. It's not really an excuse. We don't have an excuse. Uh, it's just kind of like kids thinking, oh, mom and dad aren't here yet. I'm going to do something wrong. And mom and dad show up right as you're in the middle of doing something wrong. It's exactly what happens here. It says, so he said, verse 9, Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering because the people were fleeing. And so he does offer the burnt offering, which was not lawful for him to do. Saul had no authority under God to offer that offering. It says, now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. That is exactly the way it works in real life. Children, teenagers, expect this to be reality all the time. This is the way it's supposed to work. It says, Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. I bet he did. Oh, what, Saul? Saul? Oh, hide that. Put that up. Samuel, it's so wonderful to see you. I'm so delighted. He actually was not delighted. It says in verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? 
he realized something had happened. Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, the Philistines were gathered together at Michmash. And I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal. And I've not made supplication to the eternal. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Saul was scared by the circumstances. He saw that he didn't have many people. And the people he had were leaving one after the other. And so the the law of God that told him not to do this suddenly disappeared from view. And he acted on that fear and offered an offering that was not lawful for him. And there were consequences. Verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the eternal your God, which was his highest priority, regardless of what was going to happen in the battle. The commandment of God should have taken priority. He says, which he commanded you. For now the eternal would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The eternal has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the eternal has commanded him to be the commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the eternal commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him. About 600 men. So before we just point at Saul and go, what a dope. Who would do something like that? Why would you do something? We do understand, you go back to verse 5, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and he has an army of 600 people with sharp sticks, probably some rocks, and whatever saliva they can do to spit in a Philistine's eye, and that's about it. That's all they have. It's easy to think, well, he should have just had faith in God. But you know what? We weren't there. And we need to give him some kind of break. It was terrifying. Terrifying. And that terror, that fear, overwhelmed him and he lost sight of the larger picture. You know, sometimes as that ant on the Mona Lisa, when we're in the dark place, say the Mona Lisa's hair or part of her clothes and it's dark and our square inch is nothing but darkness. That's all we can see. And suddenly the big picture is all about darkness or fear or concern. And that starts to govern our actions instead of the actual larger picture that we have to keep in mind. There's a remarkable example that differs from that in his own son. Uh, Turn to chapter 14, just a page over for me. Chapter 14 and verse 1. It says, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Let's jump down to verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the eternal will work for us. For nothing restrains the eternal from saving by many or by few. Now, Jonathan's part of the same army. He's part of the same group of 600 men. The Philistines are no smaller for him. It's still thousands and thousands and thousands of chariots. But Jonathan maintained the big picture. He realized things may look dark in this square inch, but there is a God in charge of all of this. And he's the one who decides who wins the battle and who loses the battle. And it's actually a great story. It won't take time to read the whole thing, but he comes up with a little test. Uh, They decide to show themselves to the Philistines. And they essentially say if the Philistines approach them or tell them to uh, uh, tell them to come over there, then they say, all right, then we're doing it. We're going over and we're going to take care of business. And the Philistines do. They're all 
cocky. It's like, oh, look, some of the Hebrews, they've, they've come out of their rocks. They come out of their caves. <laughs> hey, come over here. We want to show you something. That's pretty much exactly what he says. And Jonathan said, God's given us to them. God's given them to us. Let's go. And sure enough, there's a great slaughter uh, within that land just with Jonathan and his armor bearer. And the word spreads like wildfire amongst the Philistines. It actually describes it like the ground has shaken. And it's a great victory. But because Jonathan was not defined by just the square inch he was on. He strove to overcome that and maintain the bigger picture. And I know those square inches can be difficult sometimes. When you're faced with a life-threatening disease, that's a dark square inch. I know. Whenever you're faced with losing a home and losing a job and not knowing how to feed your family, that is a dark square inch. But you know what? Sometimes it's the opposite way. Sometimes we're in a bright, sunny square inch. And as a result, the whole world is bright and gay and things are fantastic, things are good. And we don't realize still there is a larger picture. And then when the harder times come, we're not ready for them. I, I've thought to myself, I, I, we have, I've been blessed with uh, four boys. And I say they're handsome boys, but it's kind of self-serving because they do look like us a little bit. Uh, they don't like to hear that. It's, oh, Dad, please stop saying that. We do not want to grow up and look like you. But still, uh, I've been blessed with four boys. And we've been blessed with health. They have been healthy boys. And I remember praying with them at night, and I always want to remind them, we need to thank God for that. You never take those things for granted. So we would thank God that we had a house. Thank God that we had health. Thank God that we were taken care of. But it got to me once when I realized I need to be careful about that. Not that I don't want to thank God, but I don't want to accidentally build a culture in them or in myself that whenever those harder times come and I don't have health and I don't have a house, and I don't feel taken care of, that I somehow feel like God's abandoned me, that somehow there's nothing to be thankful anymore, that God is no longer in heaven anymore. I don't want to accidentally be overcome by the good times that I still lose sight of a larger picture when my crawling as an ant goes from a light patch to a dark patch. We have to found our attempts to see the bigger picture on more certain, definitive, and immovable things than the square inch we're on at the time. Uh, just as one example, turn to Psalm 18. I don't want to give you all of those because that's the big picture. That's, that's things we're striving for that we hear messages about. I do want to focus on the obstacles, but I want to explain why it's important to focus on these, those things and not let these obstacles get in our way. Psalm 18. Psalm 18 and verse 2. So many verses you could read that say something similar, but I do like this one. Psalm 18 and verse 2 says, The eternal is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the eternal who is worthy to be praised. He is the rock. Everything else can shake. Everything else can move. Our view of the big picture has to be founded on those things that are the same no matter what our circumstances. No matter whether we're in dark days or bright days. No matter if the length of our days for the rest of our life till the day we die is goodness and brightness and health and wealth. Or whether from now on 
God allows us to have a burden because for reasons we can understand, He needs us to be an example for others for the rest of our life of patience and virtue and faithfulness in times of difficulty. So the kicker here for this particular point, I want to remind us, the big picture is always bigger than the square inch we're in at the time. It is always larger than the square inch we're in at the time. And if we can't see past what we're currently experiencing in our lives, we will fail to see the big picture. So let me encourage you to ask yourself over the next week, uh, uh, even challenge each other perhaps, talk to each other about these things. What in my current circumstances might be a danger from keeping me from seeing the big picture? And you might think, no, my life is going really well. Actually, I just got a promotion, uh, got a new house. That can be an obstacle. What in my current life, whether it's really bright and sunny, whether it's dark and dreary, what in my current life, this square inch I'm in right now, has the danger of possibly keeping me from seeing the big picture? I want to try to attach something like that to each of these obstacles. All right, that's the first obstacle. Uh, So you're an ant and you're still crawling around. Uh, Let's talk about another one. I'm sorry, that sounds so insulting. You're all ants. Every single one of you are ants. Uh, I do find, I, I know this is odd, but I do find imagining these circumstances actually does help me. And so I use these sometimes in a message. Uh, later on, after every single one of you have said, that was completely unhelpful. I'll know better. But I know for me, pictures like this are very helpful. All right, second obstacle. You're an ant crawling around. And you see up ahead, ooh, look, a red spot. And so you crawl as fast as your little legs go. Oh, because there is some red in the Mona Lisa sleeve. Then you look up, ooh, it's darker over there. I want to go. So you crawl over to the dark. And then you realize, oh, flesh tone, flesh tone. So you crawl over to the flesh tone. But on the way over there, you say, oh, the blue, the blue of the river. I got to go. So you turn around and crawl over there where it's nothing but color after color. You're so distracted by all the individual pretty colors that you fail to see they're all part of a larger picture. And so the second obstacle is being too distracted by all the pretty colors to see the big picture that gives all of those colors context. The blue isn't blue just for the sake of blue. It adds to the larger picture. The red isn't just red. For the sake of being red, it adds to the larger picture. So I want to talk about being distracted by all the pretty colors here and there. And we definitely have some examples in the Bible for this. If you turn to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. We have a fascinating tale. I find it a fascinating tale. And that's the tale of Samson. The tale of Samson. We'll just get a sense of things here at the very beginning. Samson was a remarkable individual. For one thing, if this were the only thing, his birth was prophesied. It was told to happen. Take a look at verse 3. Speaking to the woman that would be Samson's mother in Judges 13 and verse 3, It says, the angel of the eternal appeared to the woman and said to her, indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. 
Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Isn't that remarkable? Now maybe we have an example here in Charlotte. If God prophesied your conception through an angel, uh, perhaps you can raise your hand. No, don't, please don't do that. Uh, if you do want to talk about that, I know Mr. Lee would love to talk to you. Uh, so feel free and do that. But here we have an individual that God personally was excited about enough that he sent one of his own angelic messengers to announce that he was coming. Can you imagine the potential of such a person? That God felt it was worthwhile and important enough to do that. Uh, turn to Judges 14. Judges chapter 14. It does say that he was born, by the way. His name was Samson, in case we didn't catch up there. Judges chapter 14 and verse 5. It says, So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And the Spirit of the Eternal came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. Though he had nothing in his hand, not a sword, not a knife, he just grabbed this massive mammal and just ripped the animal in two pieces. You know, the Spirit of God just empowered his muscles. I used to wonder how large his muscles had to be, but when they're juiced by God's Spirit, they don't have to be that big. You know, God could do that with muscles that, I don't know about what I have, but still, uh, what some has, and just rip that animal in part. Uh, just something remarkable, the strength and power that he had. Uh, jump to chapter 15 and verse 14. Again, what a remarkable individual. It says, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the spirit of the eternal came mightily upon him and the ropes, because he was bound, the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire and his bonds broke loose from his hands. So they had him all tied up and then it's like the bonds weren't even there. They were no hindrance at all. Might as well have been toilet paper, just thin and wispy. His hands just broke them. And then what happens? It says, verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men. He just grabbed some jawbone. I guess they've been eating a donkey. Uh, anyway, he had a jawbone of a donkey and is just he kills a thousand men. You know, he didn't have machine guns, the weapons of our day. He had the jawbone of a donkey. Now, I have to be frank. When I was younger, a lot younger, it was hard for me to imagine this. I believed it. God's Word said it happened. But I had a hard time imagining some guy with just a jawbone of a donkey somehow killing a thousand men. Like some sped-up, old-timey movie where you're just kind of bonking each people on the head uh, sort of, you know, a, a thousand times. But you know what's really helped me, actually, are the, is the invention of digital uh, photorealistic special effects. Where nowadays we could make a movie... And some guy's doing backflips and jumping, and it looks completely real, and it's not. Uh, somehow that's ate in my brain. I have to admit, I can see this. If God's Spirit is empowering your muscles, and you have the power to rip a line in half, then I can imagine with a jawbone whacking about three or four men, but it's not just them. They fly into all the others behind them. Uh, you know, necks are broken, everything's flying. And there's just this amazing thing happening in the room. 
And some poor guy, uh, some fool at the, at the end says, what's going on over there? I better jump in and help. You know, bad call. Uh, anyway, you just have bodies flying everywhere because it's not just the strongest man in the world. It is a man whose muscles are filled with the power of God. And I could. I, I could. And plus, I'm, I have testosterone, so there's times I have imagined that very, uh, very detail to try to picture such a scene. The problem with him is for so much potential, there was this lack of focus. Because in Sam, sorry, I keep saying same. On Samson's life, what was most important was all the pretty colors. Uh, actually, we see that evidence. I, I skipped over it on purpose in Judges chapter fourteen and verse one. Judges fourteen and verse one. It says, "Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines." Now the rules back then were the same as the rules back now. You don't go around marrying someone not in the faith. It's a bad idea now. It's a bad idea then. And Samson seemed to like bad ideas. So, uh, verse 2, it says, He went up and told his father and mother, and saying, I have seen a woman in Tim... I have to apologize for that. Uh, whenever I read Samson, I always feel like I have to make my voice deeper. Uh, I wish I could have Mr. Hernandez come up and read the Samson lines, and then he could go sit back down. But, uh, to me, uh, you feel like you have to understand it that way, but... It says Samson tells his father and mother, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughter of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. And his father and mother essentially say, why can't you find a good Jewish girl? Not really, but you know, you get the same sense. Uh, they say in verse 3, they're distraught. And you know, I would be distraught as well, I understand. It says his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she pleases me well. Uh, that's all he cared about. Man, she looks good. I want her for a wife. And that was all. Now, his father and mother were distraught, but it says in verse 4, but his father and mother did not know that it was of the eternal, that he, that is God, was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So this was of God. Now, let's not get confused. God does not tempt us to do evil. But if we're already dedicated to that in our hearts, God will shape our lives for the sake of ourselves or others, however he has to. Samson was already a lustful man. And you could see God saying, you know what, Samson, if it's going to take sticks and carrots to get you to save Israel, I guess that's what I've got to have to do. Uh, and so he took advantage of Samson's proclivities to achieve what he wanted from the beginning. But what a shame that it had to be that way. What a shame that someone whose very birth was prophesied had to come into the world with the attitude where the only thing that's important is all the pretty colors. Look at all the pretty... Ooh, look over there. Oh, look over there. I like food, eating. I like women. I'm going over there. So that God had to do such a thing. Can you imagine a different scenario? If you will, imagine with me a different scenario. Imagine a Samson who in his spirit was yielded to God. He wasn't distracted by the pretty colors. He knew there was a God that had prophesied his birth to be a savior of sorts for his people. And so imagine the same scenario that Saul fought, where you have all these thousands upon thousands of Philistines, uh, these chariots lined up at the front, uh, which are like the tanks of the time, and they got this scrawny band of Israelites 
you know, some yards away from them, except for this one guy. This one guy standing at the front that's very clearly the leader because he's the tallest, he's the strongest, he's the most handsome. In the ancient world, that was generally your leader, the guy that could beat up everybody else. So you could see the Philistines just laughing. Look at the collection of dogs they have out. You know what? They're not even dogs. It's one dog and a bunch of puppies. You know what? If we take out that big guy, the rest of them will scatter. Who wants to take out the big guy? Oh, me, me, me. You know, I want to do it. Because with a chariot against a single man could be difficult. So you have one charioteer says, I'll do it. I'll take out the big guy. I'm going to run him right through and show him what a Philistine spear feels like. So it's all right, take him out. So the chariot charges towards Samson there at the front. And you think they'd all start scattering and, and nobody moves. Samson doesn't move, this big guy. And the charioteer is frustrated. He's not used to that. Once he shows up, people start running. He's all the more determined to run this guy through. So he speeds up and he's going faster and faster and pointing his spear right at the heart of Samson. And Samson doesn't move until the last moment, right as it's about to run him through, Samson, empowered by the Spirit of God and his muscles, he moves out of the way, grabs the bridle of the horse and swings it around like a hammer in the Olympics and throws it right back into the crowd of the Philistines. And then yells whatever Aramaic is for next. Uh, what do you think the army of the Philistines would have done after realizing they all need to change their britches or whatever, their, uh, whatever clause they had then? God could have done such a thing through Samson. But Samson was distracted. He was not led by a desire to serve God. He was not led by a vision of a larger picture. He was led by his belly. He was led by all the desires and all the colorful things this world had to offer. And you know, the world offers us a lot of colorful things. It offers us television, uh, the internet, uh, cell phones. You know, the whole world is right there available on your cell phone. I saw you on your cell phone just a while ago. I'm just kidding. I really didn't. I just thought I'd scare someone. Oh, I better put it up. Uh, Everything. The world offers us so much. Uh, The different movies that we have. You know, if you're a boy, the world offers you girls. If you're a girl... The world offers you boys. Uh, There's so much out there to distract us. It could be job. It could be sports. It could be vacation. It doesn't even have to be evil things. I'm not talking necessarily about evil things. Mr. Meredith actually talked in the council meetings about how sometimes we can get so caught up in the busyness of running the church that it's easy for us to lose sight of the big picture. That we in the ministry have to strive to make sure that the busyness of running the church doesn't distract us from the larger picture of what we're here for and what we're doing. And so one of the obstacles to seeing the big picture is the temptation to run from color to color to color, forgetting that there is a big picture that all of this is a part of. And so let me encourage you to ask yourself over the next week or to talk with with your spouse or friends, what are the distractions in my life that have the greatest potential or distracting me from the larger picture. They don't have to be bad. They don't have to be bad. Anything can serve as a distraction from the larger picture. What are the pretty colors that may cause me to crawl from place to place to place, forgetting I'm on a larger picture? All right, third obstacle. Third obstacle. This one, for some reason, is one of my favorites. I haven't exactly figured out why yet. 
but maybe some of you could tell me. The third obstacle, I believe, is crawling around the big picture and thinking you do see the big picture when really you don't. Thinking you've got it. I've got it. I've got the big picture. When really we don't. It's easy as individuals to make mistakes like that. Uh, you could use the ant on the Mona Lisa. You're crawling around, surveying it, and you've, you've seen, okay, these colors, this. I know what it is. I got it. I am crawling on a Picasso. When Mona Lisa's not a Picasso. She looks human. She's not a, not a Picasso. Or crawling around in the big picture and thinking, I'm on a Monet. I, it's Leonardo da Vinci that painted the Mona Lisa, not Monet. But being convinced, I am, I'm crawling on a Monet. And that is the limit of artists, I think, that I can mention. I know uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Picasso, uh, uh, Rembrandt. Oh, I'm crawling and I'm on a Rembrandt. When that's not the picture that we're on at all. When we have a different big picture in our mind and we're convinced that it is the big picture, we risk not realizing we're not actually seeing God's big picture. Now, we have examples, again, of that in Scripture. Turn to Matthew 23. When you look at the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers of Jesus Christ's day, they received some of the harshest rebukes in the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Jesus Christ just gives them a lashing in the Bible. Matthew chapter 23. Let's just note some of the things. You could read this whole chapter. If you want to see Jesus Christ take somebody down, you read Matthew 23. Uh, there is nothing left of these people after Jesus Christ is done. They are in shreds on the ground. Uh, let's take a look at some highlights. Uh, Let's see, verse 15. To me, this is one of the worst things that could be said about me. It says, because uh, I fear being in this place. I never want Jesus Christ to have to say one of these things about me. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Ah, that's rough. That's rough, but that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. Uh, jump down, actually. Uh, to verse 23. Uh, he talks about, uh, what do you, actually, jump down to 20, sorry about that, jump down to 26, sorry, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 25, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That is sharp. That is like watching Mr. Meredith on the telecast talking about religions of the day. That is crushing. Oh, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You're like a rotting corpse on the inside. Amazing to say that. Uh, you know, in the hippie generation, they used to talk about speaking truth to power. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He let them know where they were spiritually. And yet they had an issue. What was behind that issue? I think one clue to it is given in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and we'll start in verse 29. 
Luke chapter 7 and verse 29. It says, When all the people heard Him, that is Jesus Christ, even tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They didn't want to be baptized by John. The people loved John. And for them to have been baptized would have been giving him kind of endorsement, would have started to take some power away from them to legitimately who God was using. And they didn't even ask themselves whether God was really using him. They just didn't want that to happen. So verse 31, it says, The Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not weep. The Pharisees couldn't get it. They had a script for the Messiah. They had a song that they knew when he would show up, he would dance to that. They felt they had the big picture. He's going to show up. He's going to be just like us. And he's going to run the show. He's going to make us powerful and all the rest and put us in charge. And Jesus Christ comes and doesn't do any of that. He doesn't do any of that. And he didn't match their big picture. But they couldn't adjust for that. Because they already had a big picture in mind. There was no room for another. John, the Baptist, was the opposite. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I've had two of my favorite passages in the Bible in this particular sermon, if I get to the other one. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I won't read it all. If I read it all, I, I do start to get a little emotional. Uh, I do, John the Baptist, to me, is a remarkable person. For a lot of reasons. And his disciples were bothered because Jesus Christ's present upset their idea of the big picture. They were excited about the ministry of John. And yet Jesus Christ comes and has this huge ministry. And all of John's disciples start going with Jesus Christ and they're bothered by that. And John explains to them, this is the way it's supposed to be. Don't be bothered by that. And so John is talking about all of that. And he says in verse 30, He must increase but I must decrease. Personally, I think that is one of the most remarkable sentences uttered by a human being in the history of mankind. Especially one that had the power and influence in his day of John the Baptist. I, I don't mean to be too disparaging on our political leaders, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but I have to admit, I have a hard time imagining a political leader today uttering that sentence, this other person must increase and I must decrease. I have a hard time imagining the leaders we have in Hollywood, quote-unquote leaders, saying, others must increase, uh, it's my job to decrease now. He saw the larger picture and saw that was supposed to be. It's remarkable. But when we have our own big picture in mind, we can't transition. It gets to become an obstacle. And the world offers us a lot. Uh, I've known uh, some that are so caught up, for instance, in a... Uh, conspiratorial theories concerning the government. And don't get me wrong, the concept of a conspiring politician, ooh, that's really strange. Uh, you know, yes, there are things that go on, but they can be so consumed by this larger, grand picture 
that it's easy to start realizing I'm losing sight of the big picture God is giving me. That I see on the sermons from headquarters. That I read in the Living Church News. In fact, I start to wish I could erase some of the articles in the Living Church News and put in what I have learned about what the White House is doing and all of these other things. Because we lose sight, because our big picture doesn't have room for the actual big picture. Uh, Sometimes we get caught up in uh, different views of biblical doctrines. It's amazing how just simply one idea can start to knock over others and others and others. And next thing you know, you've got this grand, larger view, a big picture, and suddenly we don't see God's big picture anymore. Because we've sort of recrafted the edifice. You know, there's a reason that the leaders here in Charlotte are very protective of the big picture and bring it up a lot. There's a reason that Dr. Meredith hammers the work and what we're supposed to be doing. There's a reason that Dr. Winnale presses upon all of us in the ministry to consider the brethren God's pastorate and that you're serving him by serving them. Because it's very easy to get caught up in a different big picture. And the moment we do, we don't have room for the real one. So in this one, the particular point I want us to walk away with, if we're not careful, we can get so caught up in and devoted to a big picture of our own devising that we don't realize we're missing the real thing. That we don't realize we're missing the real thing. And so what I want us to ask ourselves, perhaps, to consider, what I want to ask myself, is what do I think the big picture really is? What do I really think it is myself? I want to be able to talk with my wife about that. What does she think? the big picture is. And then compare and contrast that with what I hear coming from the leadership that God has inspired in the church to keep us focused on the big picture. To keep us doing that. I I talked with a a gentleman once who called me on the phone and he had a lot of different ideas. He'd submitted papers to to headquarters for years and he just didn't get a whole lot of approval on, on, on some of his ideas apparently. And he wasn't in my church area, but he had called me about something. And he expressed this frustration. Oh, you know, the Council of Elders and Dr. Meredith, they're just not listening to me. They're just not, they just don't understand what I'm trying to show them. And I was realizing I'm not going to get very far with this fellow, but I tried to explain, you know, if all of those men and Dr. Meredith aren't very swayed by what you're saying, are you really sure they're the ones that are having an issue with seeing the big picture? Is it very possible instead, at least consider, at least be open to the idea that your big picture might be the one that's out of whack? Uh, it, didn't, it didn't really go very well. He's pretty sure he's, last I heard, he's pretty sure he's one of the two witnesses. So I don't think that actually, uh, I don't think that actually went real, real well. Uh, fourth obstacle. Fourth obstacle. Moving on to a different one. Fourth obstacle. Thinking that your favorite square inch is the most important square inch of all this square inch is the single absolutely most important vital can't do without it square inch in the entire painting so imagine being an ant you're crawling around the mona lisa and you're right there in that little bubbling brook that blue brook right over her right shoulder And you realize, oh, the blueness here. It gives me such perspective. You know, Leonardo da Vinci's paint is a little higher 
in this blue as an ant. I can kind of crawl up and I, I, I know I see the big picture better. This is the most important square inch of the painting. The rest could burn and I will defend this square inch with my life. You know, so-and-so on Mona Lisa's eye thinks that's the most important square inch. He's wrong. The dumbest ant I ever knew. The blue square inch is what matters. Blue square inch uber alles. You know, this is the most important square inch in the painting. It's easy to gain such thoughts and lose sight that, you know what? Without the rest of that blue, big picture, it's just a blue square inch. It would look like a piece of confetti on the floor. It's not truly the most important square inch. You take all of the square inches to make a picture. Well, again, we have a biblical example. Go figure, the Bible has a lot of good examples. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 15. Now, there is an exercise in reading this passage that I remember going through myself and patting myself on the back, thinking, I'm brilliant. This has been the most helpful thing I've done in a long time. I can't believe I thought of this. I bet no one's ever thought of this. And then I think I remember hearing Mr. Weston give a sermon in Kansas City saying exactly the same idea that he'd had some time before. And I thought, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not. But you know what? Hey, you know, great minds think alike. So maybe I had that going for me. Uh, but I found this very profitable. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. In Acts chapter 15, we have the tale of this ministerial conference where a doctrine had to be decided. I'll just try to point to people. The church does things today like they did back then. They didn't send delegates to vote on what they were going to believe, but they did talk about it. And a decision was made, and that decision was for everybody. But it was very difficult for some. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that they were going to take a vote and follow whatever it was the congregation decided was the... It doesn't say that, by the way. Uh, if your Bible actually says that, please get a refund. You have wasted your money on a broken Bible. It says, rather, they had no small dissension and dispute uh, with them, and they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. There were people God had appointed to settle such things in an orderly way. So that's exactly what they did. And I, I'm not going to read all the details of exactly uh, what occurred, but we do see the dispute here. What was the decision? If you haven't read the story, I do hope that you will, but let me just cut to the chase. The decision was that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. That it was not actually a requirement on them today. And that was hard for some to take. That was very hard for some to take. You read about Paul constantly running into people that kind of come into the brethren in areas that he had a certain responsibility for, saying, by the way, if you really want to be part of the covenant, you've got to be circumcised. Now, I know Paul's going to show up and tell you the opposite. You don't have to tell him we were here. But you know what? This is. You need to do this. You better be circumcised. Trust me. You want to be part of what God's doing? You want to be a part of the covenant with Jesus Christ? You need to be circumcised. And Paul kept running into them. What were they doing? They had elevated circumcision to essentially be the one doctrine that shall rule them all in a sense. This is the doctrine. This is where it all hinges. This is the most important square inch in the entire picture. 
And they essentially, actually today what they would have is a website. Uh, the CCOG, the Circumcision Church of God. Uh, that's essentially what would be the case. Uh, it's very popular today to be able to do that. Websites are free. Uh, hard work isn't. Uh, websites are free. And so that became their fixated focus. Everything else started to fade. What God was doing in the world, what the purpose of mankind is, everything subservient to this square inch. Now, here's the exercise about Acts 15. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but let me ask you, what if you were one of those elders or just a church member that had a position? Where would have you been on this issue at that time? Now, keep in mind, Acts 15 wasn't written yet. They didn't have the New Testament yet. All they had was the Old Testament. I've asked myself, what if I had been sent and this was a council of elders meeting and we're talking about it? Uh, what if it were a ministerial conference and it's going to be brought up? What if I was at the local congregation and the minister's bringing back the decision to me? Where would I have been on circumcision? And I have to be honest with myself. I would have made the wrong call. We know what the right call is. There's no dis In case there's, you're wondering, there's no dispute. God made the decision that there was no spiritual requirement to be circumcised. There are tons of health benefits. I'm not talking about that. God, I do believe God knew what he, do, what he was doing whenever he put it in place. But in terms of a spiritual requirement, whether it was sin or not sin, they made that call. You don't have to do that to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I can imagine being there and Paul has been asked to talk and Paul is saying, look what God has done among the Gentiles. You know, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's keeping the commands of God that matter. And I can imagine raising my hand and saying, well, Paul, isn't circumcision a command of God? You know, why is it less than the rest? Aren't we to live as we know our Savior said by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Isn't that there? And I can imagine someone saying, well, no, you know, it's, it's, it's a spiritual meaning. Circumcision is about repentance. Now, so are you spiritualizing away the law of God? I could see myself being wrong. And excitedly so. And yet my minister is going to come back and tell me that's the decision. When that happens, I'd have a choice to make. I'd be in a real spot. I'd have to really think about that. And what would I do with that? Now, I could imagine saying, I, ju I just don't think it's right. I just don't think it's right. And trying to keep it alive, you know, amongst the brethren, you know, teach the controversy, uh, you know, really trying to keep it going when the Bible tells us what the right call was here. And it wouldn't have been mine. Now, don't get me wrong, it'd be mine now. I do see the reasoning. I see it. I do understand it. That's why it takes some imagination to project yourself into that first century circumstance. And let me add to that. I really benefited from some of the Living University materials on this particular topic because Paul will say things. Like he'll say, you know, if you're uncircumcised, don't get circumcised. If you're circumcised, don't get uncircumcised. And I remember thinking, okay, Paul's funny, right? You know, Paul's funny. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get uncircumcised. But, you know, you read the practice of the time. You read what Philo, the Jew, says what they were doing. And there were Jews going through our equivalent of plastic surgery type procedures to try to make their circumcision look like uncircumcision. There was a reason. They were having children being born. And instead of truly circumcising them, they were going through sort of token circumcisions that would leave them technically circumcised but looking uncircumcised. Now, why would they do that? Because circumcision was offensive to the Gentiles in the area. 
When you look at the Romans and the Greeks, and we even see their vases. I don't want to describe them in detail, why they have naked people all over their vases. When my wife and I were looking in museums and the rest, what is the obsession with naked people? Uh, but they would have things that they would use to try to make sure that in no way did they offend by looking circumcised. Please let me just leave it at that. Uh, they did not want to risk looking circumcised. And where did you do business in the ancient world? You know, nowadays it might be the golf course, perhaps. Back then it was the bathhouse. And circumcision was offensive. And potentially you could have uh, Jewish businesses no longer able to make contacts. You could have family businesses going down the drain and go from being a rich man to a pauper because you were dedicated to what God said. And tell your family, I don't care what happens, we will follow God's word. Jesus Christ has called us as Jews to keep God's word. And now your, your minister is coming back and saying your, your business didn't have to suffer? That none of this had to happen? It was not just a technical matter, it was an emotional matter. And again, I would have been on the wrong call. I would have been wrong. Because God did not require it. And I want to challenge all of you, if you've never thought through that scenario, Acts 15, and where you would be on the matter of circumcision, I really encourage you to do that. Now, if you think you would have been on the right side, maybe you would. I don't want to question that. But then at least try to stretch your imagination and think, what would I have done had I been on the wrong side? Uh, because I, would, I think I would have made a mistake there. Uh, and thankfully, there's the rest of the Bible and a larger picture. And uh, I hope I would have handled it rightly and given God time to show me what truly was his decision. So sometimes we can get caught up in one particular idea, like the, some Jews were in the church over circumcision, and lose sight of this vast, larger picture. Thankfully, the apostles didn't have that problem. But we can. We can if we're not careful as individuals. So again, I want to encourage us in this particular point to wrap up this point. We need to make sure we don't get too caught up in some detail that is supremely important to us. Whether it's some discovery we made or something that we have read. So that like circumcision did in the first century, we begin to think that our issue is the single most important issue in the world. And we lose that balance, that stability, and that perspective that focusing on the larger picture that headquarters is trying to provide gives us. That that larger picture that headquarters is constantly trying to provide us, that stability and that consistency and that balance that it gives us. So don't get married to that one square inch. Actually, uh, let me give you something specific to ask yourself. What is your favorite square inch? I got a few. I mean, I like the Mona Lisa's eye. You know, it's pretty nice, you know, and a, a little bit of the sleeve there. Uh, what is your favorite square inch? You know, what is your uh, personal obsession that the devil might be able to use to trip you up personally? What is your personal idea, the one thing you think is so important, the devil may be able to take advantage of? Because the devil is constantly looking for things to take advantage of in our lives. And in this case, the first century, it was people's devotion to what the Bible says about circumcision. Not realizing that God had a different picture than they did. All right, the last obstacle that we'll discuss, obstacle number five. 
Obstacle number five. You've been counting. We used to have fun uh, with that with, I know, uh, one of our ministers was afterwards. He said, I'm going to give you seven points. And when we compare, how many you got? Well, I got three. Well, I got eight. Well, I got nine. I got four. I tried to do four before this. You can compare notes with me later and see if we got those. Uh, This is the fifth one. Forgetting that you're just an ant. Crawling around the Mona Lisa and forgetting that as you're trying to get this big picture, you really are just an ant. Now, I don't want to misinterpret that. The whole purpose of God's plan is to make us like him. I'm not trying to say we're not important. I'm not trying to say we're not significant. The whole purpose of man, the whole purpose of creation is to build the family of God. And that's going to be with us. Rather, I'm trying to focus on processing power. In fact, you had this beautiful, rich, uh, magnificent masterpiece. And you're trying to take it all in, and you're just an ant. We should gain a perspective from that kind of thought. All the the ideas so far, we've been sort of uh, Disney movie ants. We're talking and thinking, oh, this square inch is the most important. Oh, look, I'm following a bunch of colors. i got to admit, I find that irritating about some Disney movies. Because you know what, animals? They don't really talk. Uh, You know, imagine being literally just an ant crawling around in the picture. How much can an ant truly fundamentally grasp of this huge and beautiful picture? Ultimately, God's big picture is so rich and so full that the best of our lives will be spent soaking it in. Uh, Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. I'm reminded of something Mr. Armstrong said in the old book, uh, The Incredible Human Potential. And he talks about the gospel, the real gospel, and he describes it, frankly, in that book exactly the way that we do. And he says, when it's fully understood, the gospel is one of the largest, greatest concepts to ever enter the human mind. That's one of those things when I've seen people that try to limit the gospel in an unbiblical fashion. Uh, and claiming they're supporting Mr. Armstrong by doing so. And I want to say, have you actually read uh, The Incredible Human Potential? Have you read that first chapter or so? Uh, you don't seem to understand what you're talking about. In Isaiah chapter 55, it's a simple statement, and I hope that we give it the credit that it's really due. Isaiah chapter 55, and we're going to start in verse 8. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. God says... For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has an incredible mind. Unsurpassed by anything we could comprehend. It is beautiful, and it is amazing. Uh, I said I had two Favorite scriptures. I have a lot of favorite scriptures. We all do. Uh, but two of them I've used in this sermon. This is the second one I want to use. Uh, Job chapter 26. After talking about some of the power of God, about the amazing things that He displays in His creation, about what it means to be under the cosmic authority, the creator of all things, and reflecting on the majesty we see. You see the sun in the sky? He made that. He made that. The laws of physics, He wrote them. The power packed into the atom that can be released for peaceful purposes or to devastate cities and nations, He packed that power in there. 
every cubic millimeter of this cosmos He has crafted by His mind and His power and His hands. We stare about us at a cosmos that should cause us to feel like we're almost nothing like David did. What is man? That you're mindful of Him. Look at how great you are. And yet for everything we can see and everything we've experienced and every miracle we've ever known and every miracle recorded in the Bible, what Job tells us in Job 26 and in verse 14, it says, Indeed, these are the mere edges of His ways. And how small a whisper we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power, who can understand? It is humbling beyond all thought to realize that of the greatness of God we've experienced, it is only the mere edges of the fullness of who He is. And He wants us to grasp as much of that big picture as we can. And for us to think that's not a challenge, for us to take that lightly... When we're, in a sense, merely an ant on the Mona Lisa, is a foolish thing to do. Startlingly foolish thing to do. Let me, let me say something, that, uh, something that's helped me in trying to picture this. In terms of the greatness of God. And that mind that not only He has, but also Jesus Christ has. Imagine right now, all of us, every single one of us, were to kneel in prayer. Not just in a unison prayer where someone's up here, but each of us our own individual prayers. And not something token, you know, oh, Father, bless me. Uh, you're reciting uh, what's called the Lord's Prayer by some, uh, or you know, reciting something, but truly pouring our heart into that prayer. Proclaiming to Him our, our concerns and our passions and our desires and our needs and what's most important to us. The things we fear and the things we love. What if every single one of us were doing that? In fact, go bigger. Imagine it's the millennium and the entire world, everyone is on their knees, every single human being of possibly billions, individually crying out with fervor and passion to the God who made them. Do we think somehow the switchboard would get jammed for God? And he'd say, oh, that's, that's way too much. You know, like a denial of service attack on the internet. You know, I just can't handle it all. I can't handle all these prayers. That is exactly the opposite. Our Creator would hear every single prayer as if you were the only person in the room. And more than that, as if He were sitting right across from you, hanging on every word, and frankly, understanding things you're not even able to put into words while you're talking. The first time that hit me, I realized God is a great God. But more than that, the big picture that headquarters is constantly trying to get me to understand is that he's trying to lift me from where I am and make me something like that. That he's planning on bringing me across that divide to where I'm a being that experiences in some way life like he does. Uh, there's uh, something in one of our booklets I wanted to read. A uh, chance to show off the Tomorrow's World app. A wonderful product that uh, hopefully you download on your iPhone. 
uh, in our booklet, the Ult- your ultimate destiny is, is uh, my, one of my favorites. It frustrates me that uh, when I when not enough people, as far as I'm concerned, request this booklet when we offer it because it's just amazing. Uh, Dr. Meredith writes about our future that we're going to be sons of the resurrection. He says the saints will be on the same level of existence just as your sons and daughters are on the same human level as you are. That is phenomenal. Do we comprehend that? As great as God is, He's trying to make us a part of the same existence. And we need to understand, as we're an ant crawling on that Mona Lisa, that is a big Mona Lisa. And we are a little ant. And what it doesn't it shouldn't make us give up. I'm not even going to try. Forget that. That's too huge. I could never grasp anything like that. First, let me say one thing. If you grabbed a fistful of that vision, what would that do in your life? You know, John says in 1 John 3, he says, you know, you would purify yourself. You know, you would focus on the right things. But more than that, what it should drive us to do is realize if it's a vision bigger than we can muster on our own, then we ask God for help. We ask God to help us see that. Ask God to help that vision be as much a part of our minds and our hearts as he can, increasingly, day by day. That is an obstacle. Sometimes thinking, you know what? I am so smart. I got it. My mind is so big. I have such smarty brains. I see the whole picture of what God is doing in the world. Now, hopefully you don't actually think those thoughts. Again, I'm trying to make work for Mr. Lee. If you think those thoughts, please do uh, go talk to Mr. Lee. But our heart will whisper that to us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our heart is deceitful above all things. It will try to tell us, You know what? You got it. You understand the whole shebang. One way I know that I still need to grow and how much I see of it is God keeps moving ministers to tell me I need to see it better. And God doesn't waste his words. So again, this last obstacle I wanted to discuss is forgetting you're just an ant. And in terms of what I encourage you to ask each other is something a lot more generic. Talk to each other about that. Ask yourself, when is the last time you've taken the time to verbally ask God in your prayers, Father, please show me the big picture as much as you think I can handle. As much as you think I can take, please show me your larger picture. Because I know what you say I will do. It will motivate and change my life. You know, there are a lot of obstacles to seeing the big picture. We've just gone over several. I hope we all examine ourselves to the challenges that we might have. There are challenging times coming. Again, like I've said, so many people I've seen that have drifted away, it seems like what I see in many of them is this big picture crisis where there's a larger picture to be seen, but whatever, for whatever reasons, they don't see it anymore. But if that's been the case now, imagine the times to come. Imagine the times to come and how those are going to challenge what we can see of the big picture. Let's overcome those obstacles. And let's never lose sight of the beautiful, glorious picture that Jesus Christ has given us.